Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults, is a thorough examination of the infamous UFO cult through the eyes of the former members and loved ones. What started in 1975 with the disappearance of 20 people from a small town in Oregon ended in 1997 with the largest suicide on U.S. soil and changed the face of modern New Age religion forever. This four-part docuseries uses never-before-seen footage and first-person accounts to explore the infamous UFO cult known as Heaven's Gate that shocked the nation with their out-of-this-world beliefs. And we're joined today by the director, first of all, the director of some amazing documentaries before this, Gleason and Finders Keepers, co-directed with Brian Carberry, Finders Keepers. But joining us today is the director of Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, and that would be Clay Tweel. Clay, welcome back to Film School Radio. No, thank you so much for having me. You're a maniac. You're back for your third appearance, and I and I appreciate that. Tell me, did did someone approach you? Did you say, I, I found out about Heaven's Gate, I've got to do something about it? How did this thing spring to life? Sure. Uh, so I had just finished Innocent Man, the true crime series I did uh, uh, with Netflix and with Ross Dinnerstein, the producer over at Campfire. And Ross had just gotten the rights to the Stitcher podcast called Heaven's Gate. It was a 10-part podcast that was hosted by Glenn Washington and and he was like, I just got these rights. You know, I think you might dig this. There were some religious themes I was playing with in, in Innocent Man as well. So Ross thought I, I could uh, take a liking to this. And I listened to the podcast and loved it. You know, I was in high school in 1997 when the suicides happened. And so, like, I remember a lot of it. I remember seeing Marshall Applewhite on the cover of Time and Newsweek and like the crazy bug eyes and the Nikes and the purple shrouds. Like, I very much grew up in a, a sort of like, nightly news consuming household, but that's all I knew. And so the podcast really did a great job of doing a deep dive behind into their belief system. And what I loved was that it had access to a lot of former members and family members that really tugged at my heartstrings. And I thought, well, I, I think that this would be even more powerful if we could see the expressions on their faces and, and get to know them a little bit more, you know, focus on just a few of them and and get to know them a little bit more and, and really feel their progression and arc through the course of the the journey of uh, Heaven's Gate Group. Well, I, I want to establish at the outset of our conversation that this documentary series, it's a four-part series, is not a, a documentary series that's mocking these people. It is. In fact, I really very much appreciated the fact that we get to see them, in their own words, talk about it. I think people will be surprised at how they look back on heaven's gate i'll leave it there because i don't want to give a whole lot away other than people know that they there was a mass suicide and they remember the nikes that's the thing that sticks in people's minds everyone was wearing black and white nikes in that but beyond that there's just so much more to them and to what was going on around them is that well, yeah. i mean I, I was on here talking to you about uh, uh finders keepers I and mean, it's sort of the same thing like the story behind the the salacious headline is what I'm interested in. Like, what is what is really the the sort of human pathos of like why people do what they do that would lead them to to be in the news for such a random or weird thing? And so, you know, a guy losing his leg is like crazy. Um, and and you know, believing that that your body is going to metamorphize into an alien and you're going to go onto a spaceship and live in heaven 
heaven and outer space is like also pretty out there. Uh, but like really understanding the evolution of what, what got them to that place is what I was interested in. Exactly right. Exactly. People don't end up there fully formed. There is a process. There's a path of, for people uh, in the film. But let's go back a little bit. First of all, I do want to remind listeners that Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults, is currently running on HBO Max. So you can check it out on that. So let's talk about tea and dough and and sort of the origins of uh, Heaven's Gate. I, I think that... Uh... You know, the, the cultural context um, is important to understand, you know, back in the early to mid 70s, it was a very chaotic time in this country. There was the ending of Vietnam. There was a lot of the sort of like rise of the a lot of Eastern gurus that were coming in and offering different ways of thinking about religion. There was this boom in UFOs and lots of UFO sightings. And those, you know, becoming a part of like the nightly newscasts, even in some areas. So you mash all of those together and you understand why people were both like in this time of chaos, a little bit anxious and feeding off of the narratives that were around them. And that was where Heaven's Gate was born out of. And so I think that, you know, for, for me, a part of the evolution that I talk about, too, I, that I think is interesting to point out is that the in, initial offerings of tea and dough were very rooted in sort of individualism of like, we will, we're going to offer you this path, but you, everyone has their own journey to get there, to get to that purity. And we'll just be sort of the Pied Pipers that will lead you there. And, and it will happen very quickly and you'll be in outer space in heaven soon. But as things dragged out and went on, you see that they changed their message. So like, oh, maybe the spaceship isn't coming right now. And the, the sort of sense of individual free will slowly gets eroded to like, actually, you should follow these rules will help you on your path. And actually, you know, now you ha- you're following those rules. Here are some more over the years, over the course of, you know, 22 years, you see little by little, the dials get turned, and it just becomes more strict and apocalyptic. And just what you described, you can only really understand it through the through the lives of the founders. So mm-hmm. let's talk about Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. And, and, and what was, was it his middle name? Was it Herf? Herf. Herf. So Marshall Herf Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles. Okay. You know, Very classic Southern. You got three, three names and you use all of them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about them and how they maybe how they came together. Just a little bit about their sort of origin stories. Sure. So Marshall Herf Applewhite had a, um, grew up in a very strict religious household. He had a, sort of evangelical father who was a pastor. Uh, he thought, Marshall thought that he was going to follow follow in his father's footsteps. He went to seminary and then dropped out and followed his own passion, which was uh, singing. And he, he was part of some operas and he became a choral teacher at the University of Alabama. Marshall got married and had, I think one or, I can't remember if it's one or two kids. One of the things that he was secretly hiding was that he was questioning his sexuality and he had an affair with a uh, male student at university of Alabama, which ended up making him lose his job. And so, and, and his uh, marriage dissolved because of it. And so then he was on his own in Texas trying to do opera singing and, and had a, a bit of a mental breakdown. And then at the hospital, as we've been told, there's, by the way, there's various versions of like how T and Doe met. Okay. So, um, there's, there's sort of conflicting field data here, but 
the one that we uh, trusted the most seemed to be the one that he met Bonnie in a hospital. Um, whether he was there for a nervous breakdown or not is up for some debate. And Bonnie was a was a nurse in this hospital in, in Houston. They started to just chat about new age philosophies and and sort of their their view of the world. And they hit it off and found kindred spirits in each other. Bonnie Lou Nettle's background is that she was a nurse. And in I think at the, at the time in her 50s, she had a few kids. Terry, her daughter, was the oldest. Bonnie was really, really into new age philosophy. She was into the a bit of the occult and to sort of mysticism. She would hold seances at her house. She would, this is a detail that didn't make it into the series, but she used to communicate with a an old monk called Brother Francis that she would do seances with and talk to and and give people guidance. And so those that's where her interests lied. And so when well when Marshall and Bonnie, who became T and O, when they got together, they sort of married those ideas of some of the the evangelical background of um, of Herf and the New Age ideas of Bonnie. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's a terrific insight as well as the story of of what's what's uh, how they all got together. Again, you're absolutely right. That period of the in America, the, this mid seventies. There was uh, as as if this sort of everyone had taken a, a deck of cards and thrown it up in the air, and and then where it landed, nobody was absolutely certain. We had also had a political breakdown in the country, very close to all this happening. There was a lot of things going on, a lot of unease. Well, it was around this time that they they ended up in Oregon. Correct. They went on, so they left Texas, um, and they went on the road and were just sort of hitching around um, for about a year, and then their eureka moment was up in uh, the Rogue River in Oregon. They had this vision that they were the two witnesses from the book of Revelation and that they were here to sort of bring about the end, that they were going to reinterpret the some of the language in Revelation so that people were not going to go up onto a, a cloud of light, but that the cloud of light was actually a spaceship. They had their own spin on, on what Revelation means. All right. Well, that that's that is a great spot to where we could just sort of let this series play out in terms of because the people who gather around them and there's an ebb and flow to Heaven's Gate to this. I don't like to call it a cult. I, call it, you can call it a group. Uh, a group. You know, new, you. new Age yeah. Movement. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I can reserve my own personal take on what it what I what I think of, the, of think of what happened. But I but for the for the purpose of people to watch the film. To really kind of, I don't want, cult will put a lot of people off just, and I, so I will, I, yeah, group, let's call it Heaven's Gate group, a gathering of people who are dedicated to a particular set of ideals. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I will say that like, so where the title of the, the show is Heaven's Gate Cult of Cults. And we use that because Marshall Applewhite, as the leader, even said he knew the 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 association the sort of pejorative sense in which the word cult was thrown around by the public and he was like i know you guys aren't going to like what we're talking about so we're the cult of cults yet like you can make us outsiders you can make us sound weird we don't care and this is the thing the people that were attracted to heaven's gate and to marshall and to to t and doe educated bright diverse group of people 
people who were professionals, people who were not professionals, musicians, artists, all kinds of different people. But as I said, the group kind of ebb and flowed. There were periods of time when there were lots of people in Heaven's Gate, and then there were periods of time when there weren't very many. And then, and again, this is in the film, but I, there's sort of a resurgence. And I, again, it, it, and it does mirror kind of the social political zeitgeist of those times which isn't because you, you mentioned 75, the origin of it and 97, that's 22 years. That's a part of a good part of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you, you get this sort of um, it's a, it's enough to have the cycle of like there was anxiety and, and unrest in 75. And then once you start to get into the nineties, especially the mid nineties, you start to have this, this like, Oh, it's the end of the millennium. This is this big transformative moment in human history and there's Y2K fears. There's all, all sorts of things sort of popping up, both uh, culturally and religiously. Um, and and so it just fed into their narrative that like the time was the time for the end was coming. Right. Well, there's been only one other time that we in documented history has humanity lived through the end of a millennium. Millennial. Millennial. What's the word? Millennium. There's only yeah. once in human yeah. history, recorded human history, where humanity has lived through one millennium. And so here we are at the second one and people, yeah, talking about the, the second coming of Christ, number two, there's all, it was, you're right. Absolutely. It was crazy. And then the computer thing was another thing where nuclear weapons just going to start launching themselves where we, you know, was this just, there was all kinds of stuff that was going to go on. Well, I can't begin to tell you how, you know, how engaging this is. I'm talking to my audience right now. I just want them to know that there are a lot of things, twists and turns and stories to be told, uh, heartbreaking stories, uh, endearing stories, people who, who, who feel even to this day, they feel like they were on, they were in the, on the right path. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there are some people that we talked to, I won't give too much away that are, that are still believers in the theology of heaven's gate and being able to, to talk to them and understand why they still think that. And, and, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's tragic, but I think also uh, an, an important story to tell for these times. It, it's important for us to understand, no matter what it is, to, to have a greater understanding of the human condition, the un understanding of psychology and religion and, and all of these things, how they merge together and, and form the belief systems for people to better understand that this is a remarkable primer and a way to, to sort of piece together the human psyche with our desire to believe that we're going to live on, that our spirit, our energy, us physically, whatever it might be, that this can't be it. That yeah. us being here on this planet for a very short period of time cannot be the sum total of the universe for us. I mean, I, I would say that like religion offers a, a set of narratives that are both extremely um, healing and gratifying, but also can be very dangerous. So it's a double-edged sword. Exactly right. Without let before I let you get away, I just there's one person in the film that that really kind of pulled up at me in terms of was Kelly Cook. Yeah. Uh, in terms of just her parents, I don't know if I want to give away too much here. So I just want I I want to I for me personally the the person in the film, and also uh, Sawyer, those are the two people that I really latched onto. Well, to, to your point, I think Kelly was sort of the emotional core and thread of, of the show because you immediately can connect to how tragic it would be to have your parents 
join this group and to lose your parents at, you know, 10 years old. And when I remember interviewing her and, um, you know, when she said uh, that losing her parents and what that did to her, it felt like she was trying to compete with God. I was like, oh my gosh, like my, I, it just, it sort of hung out there in the room and we were, it was, it was so visceral. And she said it with such honesty and vulnerability that I was, I think like that's one of the, the more lasting sound bites from the whole show. It is for me. And then Sawyer, <clears throat> Sawyer, who <clears throat> for me is happy with himself in some ways, he, he, he feels like a lost soul to me, but a good man, a good person. I, mean, I just, yeah, oh, go ahead. yeah the, 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 the contradiction there for me is that Sawyer is somebody who is um, in somebody who wants to adhere to the Heaven's Gate belief system. He wants to divorce himself from being quote unquote human, but he can't help himself, but be incredibly humanizing and vulnerable. So like, despite his best, best efforts to stick to the Heaven's Gate path, he's, he's an incredibly human person. It's all here. It's all here. It's currently running on HBO Max. You can check it out. It's, uh, it's called Heaven's Gate, Cult of Cults. And uh, we're so honored to have you join us again today on the, on the show. We've been talking with the director, and that would be Clay Tweel. Clay, thank you so much for being well, back. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully, we'll do it again. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music